carrying on in our series in that book. We've come to the, the sixth letter that Jesus sent to, he sent, sent letters to seven churches, as you will recall. And this one is the church in Philadelphia. It's not in Pennsylvania, but uh, what is now Turkey in Asia Minor. So uh, the letter is quite different than the last letter that we looked at to Sardis. The letter to Sardis, you remember, was a rude awakening because there was a problem of hypocrisy in that church where the kind of hypocrisy that's the worst kind I described because it was a hypocrisy they didn't see. Because outwardly, their church was flourishing, it had its programs, it was growing, finances were good, everything, was, everything looked really good. And, uh, but the Lord said to them, you have a name that you're alive, but, but you're dead. Now it was like a, a bolt that you know, struck them. With, they were probably expecting as they heard the part that was to the other churches and heard how they were charged with things and they were told of good things. They probably were waiting for the, okay, what's he going to say about us? We're really doing well. We're an example here. Everybody looks up to us. You know, we've got a name that we're alive. And, and that's the first thing he said. He didn't even commend them on anything. It was quite, quite something. And then now there's this letter to the church at Philadelphia. It's almost the opposite. You know, Jesus tells them, even though they're in their leadership, just have a little bit of strength. Everybody wasn't admiring this church. Oh, look, at that. wow, they're really flourishing. The world wasn't particularly intimidated in the way that they would be with some great thing that looked like it was going to take over and you know, that sort of thing. You have a little strength. Nothing very impressive there. But they had been faithful. And so they are therefore, the Lord says, accomplishing great things. Sardis thought they were accomplishing great things, but they weren't. Philadelphia, they didn't think they were accomplishing very great things. And they were. So it's very, very interesting, isn't it, to see that, that contrast. The city of Philadelphia was the youngest of the cities to which Jesus wrote. It had been built in 140 B.C. by Attalus II. Philadelphus was his name, so it was named after him. He was the king of Pergamum. So, you know, we looked at uh, a letter to them before. And he built this city with a mission. Okay, the Greeks were very proud of their culture and they wanted to civilize the regions that they had gained control over. And so they would try to Hellenize them, to make them, to bring in the Greek culture. They tried to do that with the Jews, you know, along the way to, to make them like Greeks. So the purpose of Philadelphia was to promote Hellenism in the regions of Mysia, Lydia, and Phrygia. Philadelphia was strategically located at the border where these regions came together so that they could uh, have an influence just as they lived their lives as a Greek city before these others that didn't have such a high culture as the Greeks had, that it would be attractive to them, that they would be able to have an influence. The mission was largely quite successful. In other words, they achieved what they wanted to achieve. And though Rome now ruled the area, the Romans were quite pleased 
for the Greek way of living to continue. In fact, they largely embrace that. That's why we talk about Greco-Roman culture, because the, the Romans didn't exactly bring their own culture so much. The Greeks developed culture, such a, such a high kind of a culture, and then the Romans kind of, when they took over, they kind of latched on to, uh, to that in a certain way. So uh, because of its location and purpose, Philadelphia was prosperous. They had excellent vineyards in this area. They were well known for the wines that they produced. They had their Greek-style temples with their you know, typical um, immorality and uh, drunkenness and, and their feasts and all of those kind of things that went on. They had a tradition there that was um, particularly a tradition that they had of erecting monuments in the temple to honor noble citizens who had done great things, benefactors and, and things like that. It's a city that was there originally to promote uh, culture and stuff. Then they wanted to you know, set up sort of cultural icons that had done things and promote this sort of thing. So they would erect columns and they would inscribe the names of these citizens on those columns. I'm sure there were different levels and degrees. You might get a whole monument for yourself. I don't, I don't know that for sure, but... This is, this is the kind of thing that was, was going on. So that's important. We're going we're gonna to be touching on that because some of the things Jesus says in this letter refer to some of these things that were part of their uh, city. Like nearby Sardis, Philadelphia was destroyed by the great earthquake that occurred in 17 AD. We prayed for the earthquake that had recently occurred in Turkey in our prayer meeting today. Well, this earthquake was in 17 A.D., so it was uh, in not too long before Jesus came. But like Sardis, I mean, before he appeared in his ministry, it was after he was born, of course. But uh, like Sardis, it was also quickly rebuilt by the emperor Tiberius. And like Sardis, Philadelphia also, in, to thank Tiberius for doing this, built a temple that was dedicated to him. It's an expression of gratitude. And in addition to that, interestingly, this is sort of a curious thing, but they changed their name to Nea Caesarea, though the name did not stick, but for more of a couple of years. So New Caesar was the name that they gave to their city. And it just lasted for two or three years, and then it went back to Philadelphia, calling it Philadelphia. Nobody knows why. At least not anybody that I read. <laughs> um, maybe somebody's figured it out since then, but I don't know about it if they did. Anyway, that's, uh, that's the situation. So um, after the earthquake, another thing that's important to know about them is that that great earthquake came and wiped out the city. As I said, it was rebuilt. But then they had daily tremors and even earthquakes every day almost, pretty much every day, for several years after that. And so this created a very uneasy situation in the city. People would have to evacuate because you would be there and then you know, they'd start shaking and they, they remember you know, the walls would fall and kill people and all that. You'd get out of the, from walls falling on you, that sort of thing, roofs, whatever. And they would you know, rush out of the city. So every day there were these evacuations. And it was, it was a pretty, you know, pretty difficult situation. Some of them ended up Sort of settling outside the city, just outside, living outside the city gates and, and you know, with the farm communities that were around. There was plenty of land, and uh, they built houses there. 
But this becomes something important to see, too, when we, when we think about the, the kind of things that God gives to his people and these very um, shaky kind of situation that they were in. So these earthquakes caused a lot of fear, as you can imagine, among the people. Philadelphia continued to be an influential city until 1390, 1390, when it fell to Islam. It had been built to be a missionary city, but there was a huge and significant change in the mission of Philadelphia. The mission had been to spread, as I said, Greco-Roman culture, and it had done that quite successfully, and it gradually shifted to spreading the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This became a Christian center in later years, and you see all the way till uh, 1390 until it fell. So it was transformed from a Greco-Roman influencer to a gospel influence or the kingdom of God influence. It remained faithful longer than any of the other churches that Jesus wrote to. He warned these churches, many of them, that if they didn't repent of certain things, that their lampstand would be taken away. And some of them, you know, were no more. And, of course, the gospel goes out in other ways. People from those remnants from those churches go over here and over there. The church goes on, but we see that today. It still goes on today. Churches are raised up. They're here for a while. And then after a while, maybe the church goes liberal or it's something else. And, and then a group of people break away and the church goes on and on and on. That's how he has worked through the ages. But uh, this particular uh, church was faithful longer than the other churches and endured longer until it fell to Islam. Now that we have some idea about the city of Philadelphia, let's read the letter that Jesus wrote to them. It's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 13. And I think you'll be able to see, if you look carefully, some parallels to the things that we learned about just now that were in the history of Philadelphia. That's why I gave them to you, because there's things that are, are connections of that. And of course, they knew their history. They, they lived there when they got this letter, and the people around knew about their history as well. So, uh, yeah, I'll point some of this out as we go along in the exposition. But here's, here's the word of God, Revelation 3, 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, and you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thanks be to God for his holy 
precious, infallible word. Where would we be if God had not given us his holy word? In this letter, uh, this little letter, we see Christ, the unshakable one, who calls his church to unshakable faithfulness and to which he faithfully dispenses an unshakable reward. You think about the earthquake. What he does cannot be shaken. This world can be shaken. There's a big contrast there, isn't there? Let's take a look. Here is Christ, the unshakable, presented to us right in the beginning here. He presents himself in this way. He identifies himself for our encouragement as the unshakable, faithful one. You need to see Jesus that way. He can't be shaken. Verse 7, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, he who shuts and no one opens. You can't undo his work. You can't, you can't alter it. What he does, he does. That he is holy. Let's look at these things. There's three things there that he's holy, true, and that he has the key of David. That he is holy speaks of his association with divinity. He is the Son of God, co-equal with the Father, co-eternal with the Father, one essence with him and with the Holy Spirit. Holiness speaks of his unchanging purity as well as his invincible power. This is the Holy One of Israel. He is the one who looks after us and holds our ministers in his hands, as we saw in Revelation chapter 1. He is the one who, hold, who knows our works and who calls us to serve. To each of these churches, he says, I know your work. I know all about you. We've seen how precious that is, that by speaking to individual churches, it makes us know that he is intimately involved with us as an individual church and with the, the ministers in our churches are in his hands. This is very important for us to, to recognize. But he's the Holy One. Okay, this is who he is. Next it says that he is true, that he's true. Truth, when it's spoken of in the Bible, it often refers to faithfulness. It can even be translated with the word faithful. It often is. He's always faithful to himself. He's true to himself and to what he has promised. He doesn't, he doesn't go off like we do. Paul says, the good that I do, I do not do, but the evil I hate, that I do. I, I'm not true. Jesus is true. He's faithful. There's no variation there's no shadow of turning in him. He himself is the standard of what is right and wrong. We looked at that this morning. He's the one that fulfills God's law when he came in human flesh. And he is the model. He is the paradigm of perfection of what it is to be one who completely is conformed to God as a human being. As he became a full human being. He remained God but became also human flesh. Is the Son of God who became flesh. He faithfully and unshakably bears witness to the truth of God. So we learn about God by beholding our Lord Jesus Christ. He is God's image perfectly set forth for our eyes. Praise be to His name. That He has the key of David speaks of the dominion that He was given the dominion that was given to him as on the throne of David. Okay, he's the guy with the keys. As our mediator, the son of David, he is the one who purchased us with his own blood. 
And he, having come in human flesh, becoming one of us, since he is holy and true, he was given all authority in heaven and earth. He was given that authority. As, as the Son of Man, as the one who came in human flesh, as meteor, he didn't have that authority until he completed his work. And then it was bestowed on him. As the Son of God, he had it. But as mediator, it was something that he acquired. He had no power to save anyone apart from his death on the cross, you see. And that was when all authority was given to him to carry out his whole work of the work of his kingdom. He had authority, of course, in a sense before that, because what he did was retroactive. But, uh, but we need to realize that it came about from his actual work. So as the one who has the keys to God's kingdom, no one can enter but through him. He has the final authority and the final say. This one's in, this one's out. He can receive, he can remove, no one can alter his decision. And he's instructed the church during this present time to receive people upon certain conditions when they profess their faith, repent of their sins, profess their faith outwardly, we receive them. And we remove them when that profession is no longer kept, when they begin to deviate from the, the call of God. So he's unshakably faithful in his administration of the house of God. He doesn't, he doesn't misstep. We may misstep, but he will correct all of that and overrule at last. So dear Christian, he is the only stable center for your life. We need something at our center, at our core, that is stable, and that's Christ. What needless trouble we bring on ourselves when we live around our own ideas, my own heart, my own passions, my own affections, things like that. When we live with that as our core, rather than with Christ as our core. When we live with the wisdom of the world as our core, where we go by what everybody says in this present time, rather than what this one says, who is unshakable and unchanging. What needless trouble when we rely on our own strength or on the things that the world leans on and we think we're secure. Ha ha. We're not at all secure leaning on the things of the world. We say, I've made it now. Like the man that had all of his riches and sat down and thought all was well. When you center your life on him, it stabilizes you. And when you're stabilized, it makes you faithful and it makes you unshakable. Instead of shifting and wavering, you simply give yourself to do his will. If you're governed in your walk by your own whims, by popular opinion, by academic consensus, by perceived outcomes, whatever governs you, you will be all over the place. But if you once come to say, he is Lord, I am here for him, I am here to do his will, then you have at your core that which is stable, that which is solid, that which is unshakable. And you can always do his will. It doesn't matter whether you're in prison or it doesn't matter if you're reigning on a throne in a big palace somewhere. You are there for God. It's not a matter of testing the wind to see which way the political wind is blowing to decide what decision. It's going to be what is right in the eyes of God. It gives you a tremendous stability and uh, an unshakable faithfulness that you can just always be going steady in the way that you need to go.
Look at how he commends unshakable faithfulness in his church then. He wants his people to have unshakable faithfulness. That's the second thing I want to show you from our text. He has given them an open door that no one can shut. Verse 8 begins, I know your works. See, I have set before you this unshakable faithful one. I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. The language in the original, and it's pretty well translated here too, makes it clear that the door was opened in the past and is still standing open. So it's not just he opened a door and then it closed back or that kind of It's a door that was open and it's still open to them. I've opened a door to you, for you, before you. Uh, I've set before you an open door. I've opened it and it's open now. But what is the open door? What is an open door in the Scriptures? Well, in the Scriptures, an open door is an opportunity to spread messianic glory, the glory of Christ, His kingdom, His gospel, into the world, okay, into our lives and the lives of others. It's the opportunity set before us to advance His glorious kingdom. Their city was established to spread Hellenistic glory, Greek culture. But being called by Him, the church there had a far greater privilege of spreading Christ's kingdom of righteousness. There was an open door to spread Hellenistic glory to this city. Now that the church was there, there was an opportunity to spread the eternal, unchangeable, unshakable kingdom of God among the people that were around the region. Of preaching a gospel that saves souls that will never perish. Not one that gives them some good pleasure maybe in this world for a while until the next earthquake comes or until uh, they die. Uh, Beautiful life. Beautiful life as worshipers of God. The Greeks thought their life was beautiful. How much more beautiful it is to be a worshiper of God. We don't do it very well. We don't always see the beauty. But the the thing is, is we're not done yet. He's not finished with us yet. And when we get to glory, that beautiful living, that beautiful, all that he's proposed is going to be ours. Beautiful life is a faithful worshiper of God who loves and serves God, who loves and serves others the way Jesus Christ did. The image of God. Right? To love as he loves. To serve as he serves. To worship as he worships. That's our destiny. The glorious culture into which we are established. The kingdom into which we're brought. When he opens the door... Together as His church, we are enabled to spread His kingdom to our children and to their children and to our people and even to far away peoples that do not yet know Him. We are always called to spread the kingdom and to pray for its advance, but the door is not always opened for us to do it like it was for the saints at Philadelphia. The door is not always open. We're always to do it. We're always to make effort. But sometimes the door is closed. There are two reasons that the door is sometimes closed. The first reason is that God is withholding His Word from a place to judge them for their sin and ingratitude. Remember when Jesus sent His disciples out when He was with them and He said, you go to a city and if they reject you and they don't want to hear, shake the dust off your feet and go to another place. Door's closed there. Go on to another place and minister there. 
Sometimes there's a place where we try to bring the gospel, but we cannot because God has chosen to harden the hearts of the people and to judge them for their sin. And we can't do anything about it. The Apostle Paul, as faithful as he was, had closed doors. And he had to move on. He, had to move, he tried to go certain places, and then a door would be opened somewhere else. Like when he went to Philippi, he, the door was open there for him to go. Jeremiah and Isaiah had closed doors. God told them, you're going to minister, you're going to preach the gospel, and no one's going to listen to you. Now, it wasn't absolutely no one. They had disciples. Isaiah talks about his disciples that were listening to him and hearing him. There was a remnant of the people. But as far as the whole nation was concerned, there was a closed door, yet they were still to faithfully minister, and they did. And sometimes it's that way because God had determined that it was time for judgment to fall on them, that that was what was needed actually for their betterment in the long run, as he was preserving them, that they would need to go to Babylonian captivity eventually, and then he would bring them out, and many lessons would be taught through that whole process that, that he was going to work. Even Jesus had places that were closed doors, as such as his hometown, where he could not do many mighty works there because the people were resistant. And he went on to other places. He spoke of Chorazin and Bethsaida, where God simply did not open the door. He ministered there, and he said, if the mighty works had been done in Sodom, they would have responded better then you have responded. So that's one reason. A second reason, sadly, probably the more common reason the door is closed for us sometimes is because of our own, own unfaithfulness as a church or our own unfaithfulness as an individual. For example, a church like Sardis was growing in number. but They were actually spiritually dead like we saw, so they weren't really growing in the kingdom. They were gaining people, but they were not actually bringing people to Christ. They had more money, more resources in their church, but they weren't actually bringing people to Christ. You can see churches like that today. They can have tons and tons of people just flooding and breaking down the doors to come in. And the church is dead spiritually. It looks like it's alive. You look at their economic report and their, their financial records and all this. It looks really, really good. Sometimes there is not even the appearance of growth, though, also in a church like this, where the church just kind of shrivels up and everybody just kind of, and they, they literally close their doors because nothing is, the, 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 God is not, he's not opened a door there. Ultimately, what we need to learn from this is that we're entirely dependent on the Lord to open the door for us to have delight in spreading the, the, the glory of our Savior and His kingdom. We need to pray. What, what did Jesus teach us to pray? Your kingdom come. And we need to pray that with realization that it's not going to come anywhere or through us unless He does it. He opens doors. He closes doors. We're to keep on with our efforts, but there'll be times when we'll have closed doors. There'll be times when we have open doors. We rejoice when there's an open door. We pursue and we go through those doors and we go faithfully to serve the Lord and we rejoice in the work that He does. We've seen that as a church over the years. There's times when it seems the door is open. There's times when it's not. Okay, Jesus explains that in the case of Philadelphia, 
he had opened a door before them not because of their strength, but because of their faithfulness. Look at verse 8 again, this time reading to the end. We read the first part, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. And then he gives the reason. For you have a little faith, you, I mean you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. So the ministers and elders here were not particularly gifted men that you would look at and say, oh wow, look at those guys. They were not particularly strong or influential men that everyone would look at as, oh, there's a leader. The church was not wealthy. They were small and weak at this time. They were lowly and despised. And Jesus says, he, he, he sums it up, they have little power. You know, it's uh, probably better to take that uh, indefinite article where he says you have a little power. Probably better, a lot of commentators say, and the way it's often translated in other translations, you have little strength. You have little power. That's, that's what he's saying. But that makes no difference to the Lord who says, not by might nor by power, but, my, but by my spirit, says the Lord. He tells us that he delights to use the weak things and the base things of this world to confound the mighty. How did that happen? How did that advance? How did that go forward like that? He wants us to know that the excellence of the power is not of us, but it's of him. Philadelphia had something far more important than wealth and influence. Jesus told them what that was. You have kept my word and not denied my name. Faithfulness. They were faithful. They were simply faithful. Simply faithful. Faithful doesn't mean that you have to go and, you know, lay out in the desert on a cactus or something to show how holy you are or, or do some weird great thing or something like that. It's, it's everyday faithfulness, just simply doing what God has called you to do every day. That, that's the kind of thing. That made them fit for the master's use. A vessel that could be used by him. The door to Christ's glorious kingdom was open before them. The Lord was using them then as a gateway into his kingdom. That's the open door. A gateway into his kingdom. Never think that because we are small and unimportant in our city relative to our city, often an unknown entity in our city, that we cannot have an influence for God's kingdom. We don't have a lot of highly educated people or successful people or influential people or wealthy people. But if we are faithful, God can use us. My concern is that when we were smaller, we were small today, when we were smaller, He actually used us more than He's using us now in the real way of using us. That we were more faithful than we have been lately. We were more zealous for his word. We were more eager to grow. We were more eager to pray, to gather, to call upon the name of the Lord, more devoted to Christ, more ready to stand up for him against his adversaries in the world. We have had some professions in recent years that proved to be false. It was an appearance of growth. Oh, look, someone else was converted. And they weren't. The door wasn't really open. That means that we had a name that we were bringing people into Christ's kingdom. 
when in fact we were not. Now there's some that were brought in. Indeed, there's a, you know, God, God did work among us. But there are times when we see, again, greater and lesser so. We need to confess our unfaithfulness and ask Him to have mercy on us and restore us so that the door can be opened, so that His gospel will go forth with power if He is so pleased. The temptation that churches face is to try to gain power and prestige in wrong ways so that they can be influential, in worldly ways to have some kind of appearance so that we can have influence for the gospel. We don't have influence for the gospel that way. We think that we can have some clever schemes, that our clever schemes, our marketing techniques, our, our social programs, our political action, thinking that these visible things will give us success. No, faithfulness, everyday faithfulness is what gives us success. Not all of those things. But that's not, you, you, you see, that, that's what we need. We need everyday faithfulness and simple things that God has given us to do for Him. We need to deny ourselves take up our cross daily and follow him and then he will be in, then he will be glorified and he will use us to advance his kingdom it is much better to be weak and faithful like philadelphia than strong and impressive but unfaithful like sardis or maybe we should say dead because that's what jesus says Strong, influential, and dead like Sardis. It's much better. The open door is often a reward for faithfulness. But our Lord has many more rewards to the faithful. This brings us to our third heading. Jesus to his faithful servants faithfully dispenses many unshakable rewards. Unlike the rewards that the world gives you, they're shakable. The ones Jesus gives you, are unshakable. Which do you want? Something that's going to disappear and evaporate or something that's going to last forever and ever and ever? That was the thing that just thrilled me when I first became a believer when I was 20 years old. This is something that lasts. I, I had all these things I'd done and I was so excited about them. They, you know, I was excited for about two weeks and then it got old and stale. My friends told me, they said, you're, you're going to get, this is just like all the other things you get into. You'll get tired of this. You'll be, by the time the summer's over, you're going to be done with this. So I don't think so. Not this time. Well, now it's quite a few years later. How old am I now? Let's see. Uh, 40, 42 years later. I continue to serve the Lord. So in uh, uh, verses 9 through 11, he tells them of a special reward for them because of their past and present faithfulness. Then in verse 12, he uses language that alludes to the familiar things in their city of Philadelphia to proclaim how he will reward them all, with his, uh, all his faithful people who overcome, how he will reward them with a lasting reward. Let's look at these in order. Okay, First, see his particular reward for the church at Philadelphia for their faithfulness. The first, things he tell, the first thing he tells them is that the unbelieving Jews will bow down to them. That's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? You go, what? What, what is that talking about? Well, before I, before I read this to you, it, it would be helpful to give you a little background. Okay, The Jews who rejected Jesus, their Messiah, by rejecting Him, 
entered by rejecting Jesus, uh, entered into Satan's service. And so are called by the Lord a synagogue of Satan. You could call it a church. Church and synagogue, it's really the same thing. We just use the nomenclature for calling the Jewish assemblies synagogues and the church assemblies churches, the, the ones that uh, are following Jesus. But, but, of course, they did not think, the Jews that rejected Jesus, they did not think we are a synagogue of Satan. They weren't saying, oh, let's reject our Messiah and be a, become a synagogue of Satan. We'll serve Satan. They said, we're serving God. And they said, this man is an imposter, this Jesus. He's not the Messiah. They remembered how God had told them, these Jews, that when their Messiah comes, the nations would come to them and bring their gifts and their obedience to their king. In other words, they would become submissive to Israel under her king. God had promised that, that when, when my blessings poured out on you and the Messiah comes, that's how it's going to be. They'll come and bow down to you. They would be ruling the world, you see. Ruling the whole world is the end of the game. So that, of course, happened, began to happen, maybe we should say, when Jesus came and the gospel went to the nations. So they began to serve Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They came and they bow down and they submit to his rule. The king has sovereign authority, our king, and he's going to have that entirely and completely at the end. With that background, okay, now come and look at verse 9. Jesus is telling the people at Philadelphia that the Jews who cast them out and oppressed them and said that they were the, the heretics and whatever, were the ones who would be bowing to them. The tables were going to be turned. So it says in Revelation 3.9, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Some of them would come, these Jews, by being converted. They would see that the gospel was true and they would humble themselves. Of course, the gospel started with the Jews, didn't it? I mean, Paul, Peter, John, who were they? They were all Jews. And they went out into the world to bring the good news to the nations. But now that the nations had come in, you had these Greek cities and places where there were lots of Gentiles in there. And there's this Jewish synagogue, that, the ones that had rejected, started by Jews the, in, this, in this Greek city where a synagogue was. But here are these, these Jews that didn't receive the Messiah and they're, they're castigating them, they're persecuting them, all of this kind of thing. And uh, he's saying, those guys are going to have to acknowledge who you are. Some of them by conversion, and some of them would be um, the impenitent ones will do so by force when the glory of Jesus is manifested. Okay, the day is coming when his glory will be seen, and they'll have to acknowledge every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The second thing he tells them is that because of their faithfulness, he will keep them from the great trial that's coming upon the whole world. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, I would not be dogmatic about this, but I would suggest that uh, if Revelation was written before the fall of Jerusalem, and I tend to think it was, uh, this is talking about the Roman persecution that brought about the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., it certainly fits that, doesn't it? 
when it speaks of the whole world, even uh, John Durham, who thinks Revelation was, I'm sorry, uh, I said the wrong name. James, why can't I, why can't I get his name? Uh, the commentator I've mentioned before. <laughs> anyway, when he speaks of the whole world, it means the professing people in the world, okay? the, including the Jews. People who said, we are God's covenant people. Christians and Jews who had different views. He's saying the testing that's, going to, that's, that's spoken of here, whether it happens at the end of the world or whether it happened, it's the testing that came in 70 AD, okay, it's referring particularly to God's people, not every individual in the world. So scripture often speaks that way of the church. So Jesus promised to the church, and because it's a testing that's brought to them, he tests his people. So Jesus promised to the church at Philadelphia is that they will not be wiped out when the persecution comes. When Jesus was on the earth and foretold the destruction of Jerusalem that was going to come in that generation that, that ended up happening in 70 AD, he said it will come in this generation. He instructed his disciples that when they saw Jerusalem surrounded by the, the armies, that they would flee to the mountains. And they remembered that. And when the Roman armies came and they were surrounded the city, then they had an opportunity when the troops withdrew for a short time. They fled to the, to the mountains. They went to Pella. We know where they went. And uh, the, the terror came and, and they went there and they were spared from destruction. They did not perish. Their lives continued so that they could bear witness to the gospel, continue to bear witness to the gospel in the world. Well, Jesus is telling his faithful church in Philadelphia that he is going to preserve them in Philadelphia when the Roman armies come through to destroy the Jews. Perhaps that's what this is. I said I won't be dogmatic. Uh, keep in mind that to Rome, the Christians were at first just a sect of the Jews. So this is a special promise for the preservation of these faithful saints at Philadelphia. Like some of the, maybe the synagogue was completely wiped out at that time or almost completely wiped out. But they are going to be spared in that time if that's the event that's being referred to. How faithfully our Lord labors to preserve his faithful saints. Whether what I illustrated is what it's talking about or something else, this is he is he labors to preserve his faithful saints. For example, a thousand years after this, many churches in this region were corrupted by idolatry, worshiping images of the saints, worshiping Mary. Such things became very, very prominent in these churches, traditions of men. And Islam was used as God's scourge in history to wipe out these churches, to bring judgment upon them for their idolatry. Just like God did in the Old Testament when his people worshipped at the high places and did all these things. They worshipped ancestors and different things like that. Then he began to to bring judgment upon them. He raised up enemies to come in. Well, Islam was used that way at that time period in this part of the world and other parts too. But the history books tell us that the few faithful saints who did not engage in this idolatrous worship at that time were marvelously spared from these judgments. And one of the reasons is they didn't have the great cathedrals and churches with all of these images and relics and all these things that that we're about, they were humbly meeting, simply, faithfully doing what God called them to do in a smaller assembly. And the Muslims weren't particularly offended. They were especially offended by the idolatry, by worshiping images. 
That was one of the things that they namely went after. And God often does that. He used them to pursue this, this idolatry and to preserve his, but he preserved his faithful saints. So this is the kind of thing, that would be an illustration of this kind of thing. Um, now I'd like to look more into the history about Philadelphia, but what I learned so far about Philadelphia is that they were a relatively faithful church. I haven't had time to look and see how they were faithful, but relatively faithful and were themselves preserved through many future generations. So this particular congregation over the years that followed, as I mentioned in the introduction, they continued until AD 1390 for over 1300 years after Jesus wrote this epistle. I could hope that our church would be around if Jesus is not returned by then in 1300 years and that we would still be serving the Lord, that there would be a, a remnant from here. No doubt corruption came in many along the way over the years, various kinds of corruption before that. It wasn't like they were perfectly pure. Never, never. But it was like they, they, they continued in some measure of faithfulness longer than any of the other seven churches. This little church that had a little strength, they became a mighty force for God. Apparently, they heeded Jesus' admonition in verse 11, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take away your crown, the victory wreath that they had been given. In other words, keep a tight grip on your faithfulness. Hold on to that faithfulness. That's what you need to do. Oh, that we would take heed to that admonition at Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church and hold on, hold fast to the things that we have been given and not cast them away to the wind. Let's return to a vigorous exercise of, of our calling before God. Now let's look at the unshakable reward that Jesus promises to all who overcome. He promises four things to you if you overcome. In every one of these letters, he promises to people having spoken in particular to this church. Then he expands it and says, whoever overcomes... You know, it ends with whoever has ears to hear, doesn't it? So this is, this is what he says. He promises four things to you who overcome. First, he says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. That's an allusion, isn't it, to the practice in Philadelphia of erecting monuments to their benefactors in the temples? There's a column for this guy because he did some great thing for the city. Jesus speaks of making his faithful saints living pillars in the house of his father, the temple of my God. Notice that Jesus refers to my God four times in this one verse. That is a glorious thing, that we are brought to God forever. To God forever. That's the glorious thing. We're brought to him, to the one that Jesus calls my God, my father. All that the world could offer was a marble monument with your name on it. If you know, if you're really, really good, you might get a marble monument. Might even get a sculpture. You might, might even have a, um, a, a statue of your of, of yourself in the temple, and your name inscribed on it. Yeah, piece of marble there. What does Jesus do? He he makes us living pillars with God forever and ever. We're alive. We're not marble monuments. We're, we're, we're made to be a permanent, we're given a permanent place in the glory of God's house. Saying, 
he adds these words, and he shall go out no more. Some commentators think that speaks of what was going on in the city where they kept having to go out because of all the earthquakes. You won't have to do that. <laughs> what happened to some of these temples, by the way? They were destroyed in the earthquake. They had to rebuild them. Does that happen with us as pillars in God's house? No. Second, Jesus says, I will write on him the name of my God. This shows the glorious truth that if we overcome, that is, if we continue in faithfulness, continue trusting Christ to the end, God belongs to us. God is ours. His name is put on us. Isn't that a marvelous thing? We are marked as those who have him as our God. We can fully call him my God because Jesus has reconciled us to him. He is our God. Not in the ways everybody's God is creator, but he is our God that we have been brought to as he is ours. He is, he, he's for us now. Just like if we would say that a husband was our husband, that sort of thing. Third, Jesus says that he will write the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem, which has come down out of heaven from my God upon us if we overcome. We will be permanent citizens of that glorious city of peace. Jerusalem, city of peace. We will live in the fellowship of the perfected saints in glory, where we will live in the beautiful way that God appointed that I talked about earlier. There will be such fullness, such happiness such perfections in being we will be what we were really truly created to be not something that's just kind of like approximating that, that we are now we're going to be what we were made to be you 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 know don't you that you are made to be a whole lot more than you are now and does everybody know that you, you're made to be a whole lot more than you are now and you're going to be that you're going to be that when we go to the house of God, to the city of God. You have a capacity for a fullness and glory that's superior to what you have now. There's a hunger. There's a hunger for it. We suppress that sometimes because we become cynical and we say, oh, there's just no hope. There is a hope. We're going to have the fullness that God has. This is your unshakable reward from Christ to be part of that illustrious city that will come down from heaven, remade by our Lord to perfection. Fourth, he says that he will write on us a new name. He will name us because we belong to him. So this is a little different than having the name of his God upon us. A wife takes a husband's name because she belongs to him and he is given responsibility for her. There is no higher privilege than to be able to say of Christ, I am his and he is mine. We will live forever in the sweet fellowship of his love as his bride which he perfects. We will be his, just as God will be our God, so we will be his, his people. We will be for him forever and ever, and this is the great hope that we have. We live forever then in the sweet fellowship of his love as his bride, the bride that he perfects to be without spot and blemish, fit and worthy to live with him forever and ever. What a reward our Lord has promised to us if we overcome and once again, as I already referred, he uh, applies this to all of us, and he urges us in verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This unshakable reward is yours if you hear the voice of the Lord in faith.
It's not like those rewards that can be shaken up by an earthquake. It is a reward that can never be shaken. Please stand and let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the promises that are made to us as your people. Not because of our greatness, not because we're mighty and strong, but because of faithfulness, just faithful trusting in the Lord Jesus, walking with him every day, following him, serving him. Father, we pray that you would make us to be a faithful people and that you would open a, the, the door to us, Lord, that you would open a door before us, that we could be able to have an influence for the city of God. We thank you, Lord, that this Philadelphia had such an influence and they had it for quite a few years. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, and help us not to despair. We know that this church was there um, with small things for quite a while. And uh, yet you told them that in their little strength that they were doing great things for you. Father, we pray. We, we can't say that that's so of us necessarily, but we can ask you that it would be so. We can pray with you. We can say that it's not so as we would desire and pray that it would be so. Father, make us to be a faithful people, not a, not a people. We don't want to be a prosperous church if we're not faithful. We don't want to be a compromising church that's prosperous. We want to be a church that is faithful and, yes, prosperous as well. But, Lord, that is in your hands, and we commit our way to you now. We pray that you would forgive us for the ways that we have come short and not been faithful and that you would preserve us and keep us, Lord. Bring, bring your word to us with strong, convicting power and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Receive blessing from the Lord our God. He's the only one that can give you this. And now may your righteousness go forth as brightness salvation as a lamp that burns. May the nation see your righteousness and all kings your glory. May you be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Amen. Amen.